3: Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, August 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show...
2: I've always said that I'll tell you when the numbers are good, and I'll tell you when the numbers are bad. Today, they're not so good. In fact, they're bad.
3: The state experiences a daily spike in COVID-19 cases, and colleges and schools manage outbreaks. Then, on the eve of flu season, medical professionals emphasize the importance of vaccines to take the pressure off a strained health care system. Plus, in our book club, a different perspective on the gruesome murder of Emmett Till in the book, Let the People See. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Following a week of daily reports below 1,000, Mississippi is experiencing a spike in COVID-19 cases. The Department of Health reported 1,348 new cases yesterday, the highest daily mark since July 30th. Governor Tate Reeves says while the high case number needs to be acknowledged, it doesn't indicate a trend.
2: I'm a numbers guy, not a narrative guy. I've always said that I'll tell you when the numbers are good. And I'll tell you when the numbers are bad. Numbers had been very, very good. Today, they're not so good. In fact, they're bad. Admittedly, it's just one day. It's not a trend, but it is important to notice it and to acknowledge it. And we'll talk a little bit about, potentially, what's causing it. Please continue to do those things that we know have an impact. Mask, work. The numbers from the last few weeks bear that out. Please continue to avoid unnecessary social gatherings. Parties' calls spread nearly every time. Ignoring the rules, not paying attention to our suggestions and in many instances our executive orders to wear a mask, to stay socially distanced matters. The worst thing we can do right now is let our guard down
3: The one day spike comes as high school and college students continue to return to campus. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says his department is closely monitoring outbreaks in high schools. If we look at the
4: uh, cases that were reported in the last week from August 10th to August 14th, we reported um, uh, 84 additional uh, teachers uh, who um, contracted, who were diagnosed with coronavirus, an additional 132 students with um, uh, a number of total students quarantined last week of 1,970, and teachers and staff 328. So we still have a lot of headwinds as far as kids coming into school with coronavirus, but I would like to commend our school systems for for jumping on this. This high number is an indication of the seriousness with which they're taking it, and if we're going to have a successful in-person you know, next month or so it's going to take this sort of aggressive isolation and quarantine approach as well as the preventive measures to make sure that we can successfully uh, get through the school year. Some schools will have to close temporarily. Um, it's inevitable. Um, so just be prepared for that.
3: In addition to the high school outbreaks, Dobbs says investigations are going at two college campuses.
4: We are investigating two outbreaks, one at um, Ole Miss and one at Mississippi University for Women, the one at the, at the W, um, uh, has some trace traceback um, to the Cotton District in Starkville. Not a big surprise, right? Um, we know when people socialize and get in groups concentrated, not wearing masks, they're absolutely going to spread the coronavirus. It's multiple students within specific groups. Um, there'll be more information coming, but it's, it's quite a few students. It, it'll, it'll be a considerable number of students when, when it's all said and done.
3: A press release from the University of Mississippi says 13 student athletes and one employee have tested positive for COVID-19. Governor Reeves suggests college students stay on campus to avoid further spread of the virus through their families.
2: You've all seen me talk about this where we get into trouble is when you've got a lot of people that are out in the community that do not have the virus and a few that do. And you go into one spot and those few people with the virus spread it to a lot of people and then they go back out. And then, boom, then we get into a challenge. And so if you have a kid that is at college, uh, I would strongly, strongly recommend that we assume that if they come back home, that we just assume that they are a positive for the virus. The best-case scenario is keep them on campus uh, for a long time uh, because we know, based upon morbidities and, and, and other um, statistics that if all of the kids that are on the campus, if if they go through a cycle of getting the virus, um, and they don't come in contact with people that are over the age of forty-five or fifty, um, and don't spread it to that that next generation, then while the virus is certainly can be very dangerous, it's the risk is less amongst those groups. But if you get take thirty or forty or fifty or three or four hundred people with the virus in college to then go home and give it to their moms and give it to their grandmoms, we're going to find ourselves uh, with challenges um, for those individuals, but also we're going to be right back here a month and a half from now talking about how the curve has changed and the hospitalizations are going up and we've got challenges again.
3: Dr. Dobbs also emphasizes the risks of college students returning home to vulnerable communities.
4: I will add something this is going to sound a little bit extreme but as we go into this college thing it's the older folks and the people who are sick that we worry about and and you know if you have a kid in college be careful be be careful being around them um honestly because that's going to be a real risk situation if you're going to visit your kids even if they don't feel bad they could give it to aunts uncles grandma etc so we need to be cautious about
3: that In the early months of the pandemic, many deaths were linked to nursing homes and long term care facilities with vulnerable populations. Dr. Dobbs says recent deaths are the result of widespread community transmission.
4: We need to realize that uh, these are people who did not have to die. These are people who otherwise would be with us today. Most of the people who are dying today in Mississippi are not in nursing homes. They're people who live in the community. They're contracting COVID and they're getting sick. and and they're dying. So it's something we really need to work diligently to suppress in the community so that it doesn't reach people vulnerable and healthy, some of whom are going to sadly die.
3: Despite the one-day spike in cases and the worrisome outbreaks, Governor Reeves believes Mississippi students can learn on campus. He is encouraging residents to continue practicing mitigation efforts.
2: If we want to keep our kids in school, if we want to keep our colleges open, if we want to have an opportunity to have college football, we have to remain vigilant. We have to take the community spread that we have today and continue to reduce it, to keep that or not below one, to continue to see numbers coming down. Again, we're certainly not going to panic based upon today's number over 1,300 cases today. You'll, as I told you yesterday, our seven day average as of yesterday was right at 700. Now, Wednesdays are typically larger than other days. We know that. We've seen that throughout this pandemic. But we have to be aware of the data. We have to pay attention. We have to stay strong. We have to protect our neighbors. We have to protect our family. We can come together and do this. In fact, over the last six weeks, we have been doing it but we've got to keep driving things down. we got to keep using our head. we got to realize that if we do the little things now, it will have an impact two weeks, three weeks, four weeks out.
3: The Department of Health will be in Neshoba County at the Silver Star today, tomorrow, and Saturday for community testing. Dobbs says it's part of a continued effort to serve hot spots in areas with high morbidity rates.
4: Uh, uh, we decide... Um, this is kind of a, a, a new thing obviously we did lexington before and we're doing um we're uh, working with the with the mississippi band of choctaw indians and they've been absolutely fantastic i just can't tell you how much i appreciate appreciate everything they're doing it's gonna be a great collaborative with their public health office um but we we choose it mostly on um morbidity right so where the cases are um and uh and mortality and there certainly has been a lot of mortality so We'll, we'll, we'll likely continue this effort. We're still learning this is a little bit of a novel approach, um, but it does give us a chance to really sort of try to suppress a hot spot when we can because we can devote resources as lab, case investigators, contact tracing.
3: There have been 74,555 reported cases of COVID-19 in Mississippi since March 11th, with over 2,000 related deaths. Coming up, on the eve of flu season, medical professionals emphasize the importance of vaccines to take the pressure off a strained healthcare system. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
3: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown hospitalizations related to COVID-19 remain high in Mississippi and health officials are concerned that the upcoming flu season could further strain the state's health care system. Nearly 900 people are currently hospitalized with the coronavirus in Mississippi and health officials say an intense flu season could add to those numbers and overwhelm the state's hospital capacity. State health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the best way to avoid capacity issues in hospitals is for everyone to get the shot.
4: Everybody needs to get a flu vaccine. That's the easiest first step. Of course, we're very concerned about overwhelming the healthcare care system. On a bad flu season, we max out hospital beds normally. So that's a challenge. And if we have coronavirus and flu, and flu at the same time, that's something that worries us greatly. We've been working closely with the hospitals, hospital association, the health systems to try to make some preparations with that in mind, those planning scenarios, and then some planning scenarios beyond that.
3: Aside from testing, there are no clear ways to tell the flu and coronavirus apart, says Dr. Mark Horn, president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. He shares more on the intersection of the pandemic and flu season with MPB's Kobe Vance.
1: Influenza is a virus that has plagued mankind for centuries, and it moves around the globe, changing each year. So we can predict uh, influenza season will occur, uh, we can predict that with confidence. Uh, we don't know with precision exactly which influenza we're going to get, if it's going to be influenza A or influenza B, and which of the variations of each of those types we're going to get or which combinations. That's uh, a, a very long story, uh, very interesting story uh, that probably talking to someone more expert than I in infectious disease. But we know it's coming. That's the point. Each year, uh, tens of thousands of people die in the United States from influenza. In a good year, where it's not too bad, we might have 30 to 40,000 people die in the United States. In a bad year, it might be 60, 70,000. It's a very difficult problem. We know that each year, hospitals around the state and around the country uh, have many people that are hospitalized with respiratory illness caused by influenza. And that many of those people become sick and die, sometimes even the young. So that's what we know is coming. Now, this year is different because we know something bad is coming. It's like looking off in the distance and seeing a bad storm on the horizon. The problem is you've already got a bad storm over you, and it's not going anywhere.
5: So going into this fall, how, how important is it going to be for Mississippians to get the flu vaccine?
1: Well, It's crucial. Uh, it's crucial for everybody to get the flu vaccine. Here's why. The flu vaccine isn't perfect. Nobody claims that it's perfect, but it's certainly better than a sharp stick in the eye. And by having the flu vaccine, then you significantly reduce your risk of getting influenza. And uh, nobody wants influenza and COVID simultaneously. Now, I'm not saying that We know that's going to happen. The problem is we don't know that it's not going to happen. We've never been through a flu season with COVID in the mix. So there's reason to believe that you could get both. That would be bad. And or just by getting the flu vaccine, uh, you reduce your risk of that having both at the same time. And you also reduce your risk of uh, it makes it uh, it makes it easier for the rest of us. You reduce the risk of spreading the flu. So by people who get uh, flu vaccines, they won't be spreading influenza. So what we don't want is a really big flu season and a big COVID season simultaneously. The flu vaccine is the vaccine we currently have, and that will reduce the amount of flu that we have to deal with as a society. It will reduce the risk of flu to that individual, and uh, it just makes a big difference.
5: And you mentioned earlier that uh, many people are hospitalized with the flu um, in a a normal year. And now this year, we're already going into the flu season with coronavirus hospitalizations. While, you know, numbers are trickling down, um, it seems our hospitalizations are still high and they may remain there for another week or two, assuming that the trends keep going the way they're going, uh, according to other doctors. Um, What are your concerns for hospitalizations as we enter the flu season?
1: Well, we... You're correct that the numbers of influenza cases are, I mean, excuse me, of COVID cases for the moment are decreasing, and we are grateful for that. But we need to get them as low as possible because we know it's not going away. We, we worry about being uh, having too many people needing hospital services. We worry about, you know, we've come very, very close to overwhelming our ICU capacity in the state of Mississippi within the past few weeks. We've been skated right at the edge. Uh, we've done had to make stand up temporary intensive care units across the state. We've had to transfer people in very unusual patterns around the state to get the care they needed. We've had to transfer some people out of the state to get the care that they needed. And not just all COVID patients, patients with trauma and other things couldn't always get the care they needed in the state because resources were stretched by COVID. Well, if we come into the fall and we're overwhelmed with COVID again, where are we going to put the, uh, the really sick flu patients? If we're overwhelmed with flu, where are we going to put these? In other words, we worry about stretching the healthcare resources beyond capacity.
5: As far as the vaccine goes, when should people start to look for the vaccine and begin to take that?
1: The vaccines, uh, we anticipate receiving them within the next uh, two weeks, three weeks. Um, we're dependent upon the manufacturers for when they're delivered. Uh, I would suggest that people start calling their uh, healthcare providers uh, as early as the next couple of weeks and say, Hey, have you got my, have you got the flu shots in yet? And if not, when do you anticipate them? So, um, and to be quite honest with you, uh, I will be taking mine as soon as it's available. Uh, obviously, it'll take a few weeks for everyone to get their flu vaccines, but the more people who receive the flu vaccine this year early, the better positioned will be to limit influenza's uh, effect on what we know is going, to, uh, what
5: we have every reason to believe is going to be a very difficult COVID nineteen season this fall. Dr. Mark Horn, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
3: Coming up in our book club, a different perspective on the gruesome murder of Emmett Till in the book, Let the People See. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker.
2: The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi
1: on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast.
3: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. In recent years, several books have been released about Emmett Till. They've each recounted the kidnapping and murder of the black 14-year-old from Chicago visiting family in Mississippi in 1955. When we talked with Elliot Gorn last year about his book, Let the People See, he brought a different perspective to an act that galvanized the civil rights movement. Now, in light of the current Black Lives Matter protests, Till's murder is as relevant as ever.
0: Because the Emmett Till story is so present to us today, um, people forget that before Eyes on the Prize in 1987, the story had been all but forgotten by white people in America. African Americans remembered it. They carried it into the civil rights movement. They told it in their families, to their children as a cautionary tale. But before 1987, um, most whites had virtually forgotten
3: the story you say you bring a perspective from the Chicago area, and I'd like to focus on that. Uh, Of course, Emmett Till being from Chicago, his mother having the open casket, which propelled this story, this horrible crime into the civil rights movement, propelling the whole movement itself. So what can you tell us about the reception in Chicago?
0: A few things to say. First of all, the idea that there's a connection between Chicago or the Great Lakes states or the North and Mississippi and the South is, is nothing new. Um, the the great migration that we talk about of African Americans North didn't just take place early in the century. It continued it's through the Second World War, past the Second World War. The The Till family had all come from the Deep South. Mamie Till Bradley, she, she was brought as a baby, as a child, at age two. From Mississippi to the north, because there were jobs, there was opportunity, there was a little more freedom, the possibility of voting, a little better schools, some longer school terms for kids. So it's a a connected story that way to begin with. When Emmett Till's body was brought back to Chicago after the murder, and Mamie Till Bradley made the decision to have an open coffin to let photographers photograph him, his just destroyed face and and publish those photographs in Jet they were published they were not published in the mainstream american press they were published in the black press in the in jet magazine the chicago defender and there was just an explosion of grief anger at least 100,000 people show up for the funeral on the south side of chicago at mostly almost all african americans it was a reminder of what they had left what they hoped to change in america uh, the life they hope to be able to lead. It was just a, such a, an important moment in African American history.
3: You said two publications published those photos initially, and a hundred thousand people showed up. Word of mouth had to play a part in that.
0: Oh yes, certainly. I, I, I still know people in Chicago who talk about it, who remember the incident so clearly. And yes, people spoke to each other and let each other know about it. It was. Uh, Sudden important unifying moment. And again, not just in Chicago, and it wasn't just The Defender and Jet, other black newspapers throughout America. And there was a very active black press back then. The Amsterdam News in New York, the Baltimore Afro American, on and on. Uh, every big city, even actually Jackson, had the very accommodationist Jackson Advocate. The Defender, though, was the closest thing to a national newspaper, brought South by Pullman Porters, distributed all the way down to Mississippi. Very, very popular publication. So that that was part of it, too. And yes, word of mouth, and especially word of mouth later in families. Again, parents telling their children, repeating the story. We know that now more strongly than we ever did from memoirs and so on.
3: In Mississippi, his story is still very much of the present. We've spoken with his cousin, who was in the room with him when he was taken so it is isn't distant history by any means. How do you think his story resonates today? Does it?
0: It's a very, very important story today, and increasingly so. This is the, the interesting thing. Again, you can do engrams in Google and see the increasing numbers of times that the name Emmett Till appears in print. Pretty much steady increase, especially since eyes on the prize. It's relevant today. I mean, look, you begin with, say, Ferguson and Trayvon Martin. Almost as soon as that terrible murder took place, there are photoshopped images on the web of Trayvon Martin and Emmett Till arm in arm. Every time these murders take place, newspaper stories so often begin the first paragraph or two talking about Emmett Till and invoking the past with the present. Just as a little example like that, it's always there. The idea that these are not the same kind of killings, but the justice system, at some stage, failed terribly, committed atrocity rather than finding justice.
3: Elliot Gorn is the author of Let the People See, the Story of Emmett Till. Elliot, thank you so much for being with us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
3: This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio.